Welcome to the modern city of Bergamo, Turkey. A city set approximately 65 miles north of Smyrna and 10 miles in from the Aegean Sea. Bergamo is the modern city that used to be known as Pergamum. Pergamum was known as one of the most beautiful cities in the ancient world, built and constructed of mostly marble quarried right here in this region. Today, Bergamo is one of the most amazing archaeological sites in all of Turkey. While Pergamum was not as important of a commercial city as Ephesus or Smyrna, it was likely even more important in two areas, politics and religion. If Ephesus was the New York City of Asia, then Pergamum was the Washington DC. Pergamum was Asia's capital for almost 250 years. Its buildings towered thousands of feet above the plain, projecting the image of a royal city, declaring its authority. It became a very important city after the death of Alexander the Great in 133 BC, when the last king of Pergamum, Attalus III, gave his territory to the Romans. This was a really good day for the Romans, because of that point, they controlled everything around the Mediterranean Sea, Aegean Sea, and the Black Sea, except this skinny land bridge that we now call Turkey. When this area was gifted to Rome, Pergamum became a very important political center. Rome had power in the west, and then now they had power in the east from Pergamum. This is the city to which Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. Let's talk about the religious environment in Pergamum. Many people from all over the area traveled here to Pergamum to worship various gods and goddesses and the many temples that were built in this religious hub. You could come to Pergamum to worship almost any popular god and to plead for their help with almost any issue you might have. Zeus, the king of Mount Olympus where all gods and goddesses lived according to Greek mythology, had a temple here. So you could come and worship him, the one known as the king of kings. If you were in need of a good crop or provisions for your families, then just visit the temple to the goddess Demeter. You could make a sacrifice to this goddess who supposedly could guarantee you food and a good crop. If you were in need of wisdom, just go worship the goddess Athena, the Roman goddess of wisdom and strategy. If you were simply in need of a break, you could go and worship at the temple of Dionysus, the god of wine and festivities. You'd get drunk and have some fun. This temple was much like all of the promises that you'd hear in a city like Las Vegas or other vacation destinations for us today. And last but not least was the Asclepian, a temple dedicated to Asclepius. If you were sick, you could visit here and the priest would place you in a coma-like state by drugging you. In doing so, you would supposedly have dreams about your cures for your ailments. Other times, snakes would be allowed to crawl over you while you slept, and it was supposedly to help you heal. As you can tell, here in Pergamum, there was a very real spiritual battle going on. The Christians were faced with daily questions of who will we believe is the one who provides for us, whether it's food or enjoyment or security or healing or who is the true king of kings. They were daily asked to answer the question, who will you worship? As we've said, this is a place of great political power. It is here that the heartbeat of the Roman power and authority is found in the region. Their great strength was on display as they dominated the region and the world from centers of political might like Pergamum. And to this church, Jesus chooses to refer to himself in the letter in an interesting way, a way that acted as a reminder to the Christians in this city where their true authority is found. In Revelation, 
chapter one, verse 16, John describes Jesus and says, in his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. And he clearly states that if they don't repent, he will come to them and use the sword against them. This is very vivid imagery. And frankly, it's a little scary. Jesus seems to be saying that in the midst of this great city, with great power, he is the one with true authority. His word rules and what he says goes. So no matter what the Roman Empire says, don't compromise and I will take care of you. What a timely message for those of us who live in a time where standing up for Christ is becoming harder and harder to do without compromise. But Jesus is the one who really has authority in our lives. He's our Lord and Savior and no one else. dreamed about something? Maybe it was a destination that you wanted to visit or an event you wanted to go to, but you just kind of realized that it was more of a fantasy than it would be reality. Maybe it was something on your bucket list that you just really wanted to do, a concert you wanted to go to, or that destination that you just really have dreamed about going. But in your mind, you just kind of recognize that it's probably not in the cards for my life. It's probably not going to happen. You see, when I was growing up, around the age of 11 years old, I loved the sport of baseball. Maybe it was because I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and we didn't have a whole lot of channels on the television. But one of those channels was TBS. And in the 90s, growing up in the 90s, on TBS, it felt like, man, almost every single night, the Atlanta Braves were playing on television. And some of my greatest heroes, some guys I looked up to were like Greg Maddox and Fred McGriff and Tom Glavin. And so I loved the Atlanta Braves. I loved watching them play. And in, as an 11-year-old boy, I had this dream that maybe one day I would get to go watch them in a real Major League Baseball game. But growing up in Pennsylvania, I just kind of thought that was a fantasy. And so one day we were headed to visit some of my aunt and uncles and my cousins, and they live about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And so we arrive and everybody's greeting each other, and my dad and uncle stand before all of us kids, and they made an announcement. Hey, we've got great news. They surprised us, and we're all going to a Major League Baseball game. It was the Philadelphia Phillies versus the Atlanta Braves. And so as an 11-year-old boy, I couldn't believe it. I was so jazzed and I was so excited and I remember we got into the car and we got to the field and here I was looking at some of my heroes, Tom Glavin, I could see him with my own eyes. We watched that game as a little kid. I don't think I blinked the whole time. I was just glued in to the, to the game and it was awesome because the Braves absolutely crushed the Phillies. I mean, they just destroyed them. I think it was around 10 to 2. In about the seventh inning, one of my favorite players, his name was Ron Gant. He smashed a home run to center field. And so in the midst of 30,000 Philadelphia fans, now let me tell you a little bit about Philadelphia fans, and I apologize if you're an Eagles fan or a Phillies fan, but y'all nasty. Y'all mean. It's not fun. You don't want to go to an Eagles game or a Phillies game and cheer for the other team. It won't look good for you. 
But as Ron Gant smashed this home run to center field, me as an 11-year-old boy and my brother, 13, we stood up and we began that Atlanta Braves chant where we stood up and we said, oh, and I'm not lying, there were grown men who wanted to kill us. <laughs> Shut that kid up, they said. And we stood out like sore thumbs. I mean, there was something noticeably different about us. In a crowd of 30,000 fans, here's two little boys standing up and cheering for the Braves. We were different. And isn't that what, really, Jesus has called us to be as Christians? I mean, to stand out in a dark world? The Bible says we're lights. Light, when it meets darkness, it shines and it stands. And what's interesting, as we look at the third church in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to a church that was called to stand out but began to blend in. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll provide one for you. It's going to be on page 991. As you're weaving your way to Revelation chapter 2, I want to welcome you to Northridge Church. Man, we're excited to have you here this morning. Whether you've been coming to Northridge Church for many years or you're just new, kind of checking us out, thank you for being here. Whether you're at one of our campuses or you're with us online, man, thanks for just taking a small piece of your weekend and hanging out with us. We are honored and really excited that you're here this morning. And we've been in this series a seven-week series called Seven. Imagine that, right? And we're looking at the seven letters Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation through a guy named John. We looked at Ephesus week one, Smyrna last week, and today we're looking at the church we're calling the Compromising Church, the church in Pergamum. And we pick it up in verse 12. It says this. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if you haven't been with us for any of these weeks, you notice, if you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and you read all seven of these letters, you'll notice that they're pretty much very identical in format. Jesus does pretty much the same thing, and he starts by introducing himself. He, he starts by identifying himself, and he says to the church in Pergamum, he uses this symbol, the symbol of the sword. And you probably won't understand what's taking place in this passage until you get kind of an idea of what's taking place in Pergamum. You see, Pergamum was one of the first cities that became fully allegiant to Rome. It started with their leader, the last leader of Pergamum. His name was Attalus III. And when he was done leading, he just decided to grant, to give his territory and his kingdom to the Romans. And this was significant because all of Rome's power was into the west until Attalus III decided to give them the city of Pergamum. And so Rome's power began to shift into modern-day Turkey and to the east. And the symbol of a sword, Jesus says he's a, like the sharp, double-edged sword. That symbol of the sword in this culture, first century, it meant power. It meant authority. You see, because whoever had the most swords, whoever's army was the biggest, was in authority. That's why the Romans ruled in this day and age and in this culture is because their army was the biggest. They had the most swords. And when Jesus refers to himself to this church, he identifies himself to this church, he's almost re reminding Christians, reminding the church, hey, remember, I'm your authority. Hey, remember, I'm the one who's most powerful in life. In fact, that Symbol, the double-edged sword, it's used other places in Scripture to refer to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. It says, For the Word of God is alive and active 
Amen, man. We should just amen that God's word is alive and active. And I pray it's working and penetrating your life. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And as Jesus starts this letter to the Christians in Pergamum, he reminds them, hey, I want you to understand something. Rome might think they're powerful. Rome might think they're an authority. But let me remind you who's really the authority in your life. Interesting. And he continues, verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And so Jesus meets them where they are. He says, hey, I know. I know where you live. You see, Jesus was meeting this church in their circumstances, in the reality they lived in, because Pergamum was one of the first cities to have cult worship. I mean, in Pergamum, it was regularly practiced to go to different gods on a regular basis, offer sacrifices to receive a blessing. In fact, when we visited this city, it was so interesting. I mean, you walked around, and you would just run into ruins of temples and temples and temples. They were all over the place. And most people from different cities would come to this powerful city to worship all the gods we listed in the video. It was a place, it was an evil society of worshiping false gods, and it was hard. Jesus says to the Christians, I know where you live. I know it's hard to live out your faith in an evil society where worshiping other gods is just a normal thing. He also says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne." Those are interesting words. One, he's referring to the actual evilness of the society. But secondly, this might be a subtle reference to the way Pergamum was built. Because you might have noticed this. Pergamum's a little different than the cities we looked at so far. Pergamum was actually built on an acropolis. What that means is it's built on this mountain peak. It, it projected this royal city. And what was interesting is when we went to Pergamum, if you were to step down to the plain. If you were to go lower on the mountain and you were to look up to this Acropolis, you would almost on every angle see the Temple of Trajan. It was a temple that was massive in its day in first century. And what was interesting about the Temple of Trajan is it looked almost like a throne. A throne where the devil could almost just rest his arms and sit down. And this might be a subtle reference to the Christians like, hey, I get it. I get where you live. It's an evil place. It's hard to live out your Christianity. And how relevant is that to us today? I mean, it's not easy in 2017 in the culture we live in to be a Christian, to stand up for your faith. It's so much easier to blend in. And do we recognize as Christians that the enemy's headquarters are all around us? The enemy's headquarters, that the enemy has his snare all around us. In fact, this is what the Bible says about this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says this, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Man, it doesn't take long to recognize this. Just turn on the news. You'll see it all over the place. But I think if you just kind of rewind a little bit to about a month ago when you saw the news like all of us did where one man decided to rent a high-rise apartment, pack all of his guns and ammos, and just, he just decided he was going to kill as many people as he wanted in Las Vegas. And we recognize the truth of Scripture that the enemy, the evil one, has control of the world. And we have to recognize as Christians that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but it's the powers of darkness. It's the principalities of darkness. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, it says, the God of this age, it's referring to Satan, 
and his demons has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so Jesus, is, he, as he speaks to this church, he says, I get it. Just like he says to you, I get it. It's hard to live out your faith in our culture today. But then he can, encourages them. Verse 13, he says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not denounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witnesses who were put to death in your city where Satan lives. And so Jesus says, I get where you live, but I want to commend you. I want to encourage you. You haven't let go of my name. You've stayed true to my name, even in the days of Antipas. You see, much like the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum was facing persecution as well. In fact, one of one of their leaders, one of the guys who was following their faith, his name was Antipas. He was much like Polycarp, who we learned about last week. He was faced with this ultimatum, worship Caesar as Lord or die. And Antipas decided he was going to follow Jesus. And so what they did is they took him and they built this brass bull for him. They put him inside the brass bull. They lit a fire underneath and they watched him be boiled alive by the heat. And this church watched this take place, and Jesus encourages them. He says, hey, I know where you live. I know it's evil, but I want to encourage you. You've remained true to my name. Because the Christians had a choice. They had a choice in Pergamum. It was simply this, hey, do I chase down and do I follow the calling that God has placed on my life? As a Christ follower, as a follower of Jesus, do I go with the calling God has placed in my heart, or do I just blend in? To the culture around me? Do I just become like everybody else that lives in my area? Do I go with my calling or do I go with culture? And what's interesting is 2,000 years later, we still face that same decision. I mean, honestly, in, in, in our world today, we have to choose between those two things. Am I going to chase down and I'm going to stand out for Jesus in a world that is full of evil or am I going to just blend in with the people around me? Am I just going to look like everybody else or am I going to stand in the midst of the crowd and say I'll be different? You see, we face that reality today in our world. And that was what Christians had to choose from. But what's interesting is a lot of the Christians in Pergamum decided to go with culture. They decided to blend in. And when you choose culture over calling, it leads you to a place that causes you to compromise. When we choose to replace our calling with blending in with culture, it leads us to a place where we compromise spiritually, where we, can, we have to make a choice sometimes where we know what God's word says, but yet we choose to go with what the world says. And when we choose culture over calling, it causes us to compromise, and that's what was happening in the church in Pergamum. The Christians were blending in. You know, I, I know I shouldn't go to these temples, but I'm not worshiping the God. I'm just hanging out here, right? It's not that big of a deal. In fact, this is what Jesus speaks to them in verse 14. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It's interesting, this compromising church that was beginning to blend into culture, Jesus takes them back to a story found in Numbers chapter 25 in the Old Testament, where the king of the Moabites, his name was Balak, 
And he recognized in his kingdom that the nation of Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt. And they were wandering through the wilderness, conquering different nations, and that God's hand was upon them. And they were headed to the Moabites. And so the king, Balak, the king of the Moabites, is fearful. And so he goes to a prophet named Balaam. And he asked Balaam, I want you to curse the nation of Israel. They're coming our direction, and we don't want to be destroyed by them. But Balaam, the prophet, says, I I can't. God's hand is on the Israelites. I can't curse them. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, he begins to seduce Balaam. He begins to offer him gold. He begins to offer him women, trying to get him to curse the nation of Israel. But Balaam Balaam looks at him. He's like, I can't curse the nation of Israel. But over the course of this conversation, Balaam the prophet begins to bend. He begins to compromise. And he realizes that he doesn't have to curse the nation of Israel to get them to fall. And so he teaches the king of the Moabites, in order to remove the curse from Israel, you have to seduce them into sinning. And so he teaches them, he tells Balak to send the Moabite women to Israel so they will engage in sexual immorality, they'll worship other gods, and God will remove his hand of protection. In fact, we see what happens in Numbers chapter 25. It says this, while Israel was staying in Shittim. Now, you got to be careful when you read the word of God. (laughs) You don't want to read that too fast. You get in trouble. The man began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. They slowly began to compromise and it led to their destruction. It's a slippery slope. And what's interesting is we hear that word compromise Sometimes compromise is a good thing. I think in my marriage, when I compromise with my wife, usually means she gets her way. It's a joke. But we compromise in in business. We compromise in our marriage, and it's a good thing. But today we're talking about spiritual compromise. And I want to define this for you. Spiritual compromise is when you give ground to culture over calling. When you compromise spiritually. It's when you say, hey, I'm going to go with the world's way instead of God's way. I know what God's word says. I know the truth of scripture, but I'm going to bend a little bit to culture knowing what God said. That's what happens when you spiritually compromise. And how many of us are guilty of this? And here's the result. When we choose to compromise spiritually, here's the result. The result of compromise is you claim a faith you aren't practicing. You claim a faith you aren't practicing. And I wonder how many of us are there today in 2017 where we claim that word, Christian. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I follow God. But yet when you examine your life, that claim doesn't really live out in your actions and in your home and in your business. You see, that's what happens in this slippery slope of compromise is we actually think we claim, we actually think we're following God, but if we take a step back and we look at the actions and the choices and the way we're living, we're actually practicing, we're actually not practicing a faith that we are claiming. And that's the slippery slope of compromise. That's what was happening in this church is they were saying, hey, we're Christians. The problem is, is God couldn't tell them apart from the rest of the world. Oh, I mean, 
is it that big of a deal that we go and worship other gods? But don't worry, God, it's not that big of a deal, right? We don't believe in these gods. We're just kind of going through the motions, but we really believe in you. That's what they were doing. And what's true in our life and what's true in this church is we don't compromise necessarily in the big areas. We don't compromise in our doctrine. We don't compromise in our theology. We know right from wrong, but where we compromise is in the small, seemingly insignificant areas of our life. Areas that we would say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. This isn't hurting anybody, not even me. And what we fail to realize and what the church in Pergamum failed to realize is small compromises lead to major changes. Small compromises in your walk with God will lead to major changes in your relationship with God. Small compromises in your marriage and how you treat your spouse will lead to major changes in your marriage. And the story goes on and on. Little choices lead to big regrets. Little choices lead to major mistakes. And the church forgot about this because they were compromising in just the little areas. Didn't seem like that big of a deal. When I think about this concept, I think of a, a guy named Samson in Scripture. If you don't know who Samson is, I would encourage you, if you want to dig a little deeper into this message, read Judges chapter 13 through 16 later on in the week and take a good look at Samson's life. Samson was the guy every man desires to be. He was the strongest man probably to ever walk the face of the earth. God gave him a gift of strength. But in that gift, he had this Nazarite vow where he had to live a certain way. He had promises he had to hold on to. And over the course of Samson's life, he just made small compromises, compromises to his Nazarite vow, compromises to the women he married. And over the course of just those little compromises, it led the strongest man to become weak, blind by his own compromises, finding himself being a slave without strength. And that is the course that a lot of us are on because we're making these small compromises in our walk with Jesus. And it really led me to this question I had to ask myself, and a question I want to ask all of us is, in what area of your faith are you compromising? In what area of your faith or your walk with God are you in the little areas, in the seemingly insignificant, in those small pockets of your life? Where are you compromising? Maybe today it's with those little white lies, right? Because they don't do that much damage. They're just little white lies. And maybe it's on your taxes. You know, it was just tax season. And maybe you fudged the numbers just a little bit. They weren't exactly true, but they were close and you know, hey, it, it was close, and so it will give me a better return, and so I compromise. Maybe it's in the way you date. You know what God says about your sexuality. You know the standards he has, the boundaries he's given you, but you want to have a little bit more fun, and so you kind of just go that direction, and you compromise. Maybe today it's in what you watch on your television, the movies you watch or the shows you watch, I know there's nudity, and I I know there's a little bit of foul language, but it's really not that big of a deal, is it? It's not affecting anybody. So you compromise. Maybe it's the way you respond to the way people speak to you. You get angry, and you get mad, and you throw something you shouldn't throw, and you compromise. What area in your life 
and in your walk with God that doesn't seem like that big of a deal? Are you trading in your calling for culture and compromising? Because Jesus is speaking to a church that he called to stand out, but was blending in. And I think sometimes as Christians, we fail to realize what Jesus has called us to. Matthew chapter 5, this is the calling he's given us. You see it, you are the light of the world. He's speaking to Christians, people who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus. This is a loud calling for all of us as Christians. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You realize today that me and you as Christians, we're called to be light in a dark world. I mean, this is almost like pie squared. Like there should be something noticeably different about us because Christ lives in us. I'm going to say that again. There should be something noticeably different about us because Christ lives in us. Is there? I mean, really, like when we look at our lives, is there really something different about me in my office and in my school and wherever God leads me? Is there something, am I a light? Or have I just become this dim Christian who claims to follow Jesus, but honestly, my life doesn't follow Jesus? I just look like everybody else around me. That's what Jesus was getting at. Is there a noticeable difference in the way you do marriage because Jesus lives in you? Is there a noticeable difference in the way that you handle conflict in your office or in your school because Jesus lives in you? In every area of your life, is there a noticeable difference because you have the Savior of the world, God's power that raised him from the dead living inside of you? Is there something different? And this is really the question he was asking this church. Do you blend into culture or do you stand out for me? Do you blend into culture or do you just stand out for me? Check this out. Here in Pergamum, several of the gods were given the title of Lord and Savior. Never was that more true than with the imperial cult worship that found its headquarters right here in Pergamum. Imperial cult worship involves sacrificing in the name of the emperors of Rome and declaring them to be Lord and Savior. In the year 29 BC, Pergamum became one of the first cities in Asia to have a temple dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. It started with Caesar Augustus, but found its stride under Nero, Domitian, and Trajan. Citizens of Pergamum and any other people traveling to the city would be required to offer incense to the image of the emperors and openly declare Caesar is Lord, which obviously created a problem for Christians who believed that Caesar was just a man and Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It's likely because of the authority and the enforcement of the imperial cult worship that Jesus called Pergamum the city where Satan has his throne. This is a major threat to the pursuit of following Jesus. If you were going to be faithful to Jesus, you couldn't openly declare that Caesar or any other God was Lord and Savior. And if you didn't, you could easily lose your citizenship, your business, your home, or even your life as many did. It was right here in Pergamum that many new believers had to decide, will I follow Jesus and be faithful to him? Or will I just blend in? Here in Pergamum, they stuck to their statement, their beliefs about Jesus, but many didn't live it out. 
This is why Jesus says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. He is the one true authority in our lives today. So maybe you find yourself where this church is at, compromising, blending in to the world around you. Maybe you're there today and you're wondering like, how in the world do I get back on track? This is what Jesus says to this church that found itself blending in. He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you with this, and fight against them with the sword in my mouth. Jesus again refers to his authority, refers to his power, but he says that word. We saw this word in Ephesus. He says, repent. I find it interesting that Jesus says repent because when we think, if we've been coming to church for a while, we think repentance is that moment where you repent and you accept Christ as your personal savior, but he's speaking to Christians. And I think as Christians, we have to recognize that we have to constantly live in this cycle of repentance where we ask God, God, search me, find out what's wrong with me and refresh it, make it new. That cycle of repentance where we constantly examine our lives and say, God, what's in me that doesn't belong and how do I walk away from it? Because that's what repentance is. It's when you locate those areas of compromise and you say, God, no longer will I live that way. So how do we get there? How do we really get there? I think the first thing Jesus would say to this church is stop straddling the fence. Stop straddling the fence. And when it comes to compromise, I don't need to look anywhere but my own life. Because there's areas and pockets in my life where over the course of following Jesus for a lot of years, I've chosen culture over calling. But I remember when I said yes to Jesus. I remember when I said yes to Jesus and I said, the, I said these words. And maybe you can relate to this because I think a lot of us, we find ourselves here. As we say to Jesus, hey, you know, God, uh, I want all of you. I want everything of you, God. I want your blessings, and I want heaven, and I want all of you, God. But I'm not sure I'm ready to give you all of me. And I think that's how a lot of us as Christians live. Is, you know, God... I do want you, God. I do. I want all of you. I want heaven, and I want your blessings, and I want your miracles, and I want all that you offer, God. But, God, there's some things in this world, some pleasures, that I'm just not ready to let go of. There's some things like, God, I, I know you, you want all of me, but I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here a little bit longer. I want all of you, but I'm not ready to give you all of me. And we almost barter with God. Because you, you, we say to God, like, hey, it's okay, God. I, I, I've given you 80% of me. Like, you've got the majority, God, but I'm I just going to keep this 20. And, and we justify it by, hey, I, we look at other Christians, and well, that person's only given 50, God. I'm giving 80. Come on, that's pretty good, right? I think God looks at us and he's like, stop playing the game. Stop straddling the fence. You can't have your, your life in both worlds. Be brave enough to choose culture over me or commit fully to me. Can I tell you today, God doesn't want a portion of you. God doesn't want a percentage of you. God doesn't want the majority of you. God wants all of you. Every piece of you. For a lot of us, 
We claim Jesus. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. But I'm not ready to give this up yet. That was the church in Pergamum. And look how Jesus finishes this letter. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say. To the one who's victorious, I will give you hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, this sounds so strange in our culture 2,000 years later. Jesus says, hey, to the one who commits to me, I'll give you two things. The first thing he says is hidden manna. And for us in our culture, we're like, wow, that sounds exciting. Hide some bread, woohoo, yay, awesome. But the Christians in Pergamum, both of these things landed loudly and clearly. Because hidden manna, one, when he said, I'll give you hidden, hidden manna, he's referring back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 16, where Moses is instructed to place manna in the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was. And what it meant was he was going to provide for the nation of Israel. He was going to be their security. And what he was saying to the Christians in Pergamum, in the midst of the evilest society ever, in the darkness, I'll be your provision. I'll be your security. And he's saying the same thing to us who live in a culture where it's hard to be a Christian. He says, you can stand because you can bank on me being your security and your provision. But then secondly, he says, I'll give you a white stone, a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, this was significant because back in this culture in first century, when they had large gatherings in theaters, they didn't have tickets for events like concerts and baseball games. They didn't have scanning systems. What they would do in this culture is they would take a white stone or a stone and the leader of the event would place a name. And anybody who had that name on that stone was allowed entrance into the event. And I find it really fascinating that Jesus says to the Christians, if you stop compromising, I'll give you a white stone. The color white was significance because in scripture, oftentimes it represents righteousness. Jesus was saying, hey, I'll wipe your slate clean. I'll forgive you of your compromise and I'm ushering you to a new way. And then he says, a, a white stone with a new name written on it. Do you know that names in scripture are significant? If you go back to the Old Testament, you think of a guy named Abram. God calls him. God says, I want you to go in faith. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And when Abram answers the call of God, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel and the angel left its mark on him, he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Saul, a guy who was chasing down Christians, wanting to throw them in jail, on the way to Damascus, he meets Jesus, and Jesus transforms his life. And he's no longer Saul, he's now Paul. And what Jesus was saying to the Christians in Pergamum was, receive your new name. Receive your new name. I've given you a new life. I've given you a fresh start. Jump into your new name. And what's interesting is when the names changed in Scripture, so did the choices. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you don't have to hold on to the things of this world because I've offered you so, something so much better. If you would just let go, if you would just let go of these pleasures, I'll give you something so much better. And he's saying to all of us, hey, stop straddling the fence. 
Stop playing the game and holding on to the things of this world and step up and stand out and embrace the calling I've placed on your life. Because the reality is, is God does not want the majority of you. He doesn't want a portion of you. He wants all of you. And really the question I want you to marinate and think about all week is are you personally, fully devoted, utterly committed, and willing to give God all of you? Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of a culture that is going one way, I pray that we'd be bold enough to go a different direction. I pray that we'd be bold enough to stand when everybody else is sitting down. God, like that verse we memorized last week, Joshua 1.9, you've given us the courage. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid because I'm right there with you. So God, give us the confidence and the boldness to stand for your name, even in the midst of a culture that is missing out. May we be that light in the darkness. In Jesus' name. Amen.